So it is um, customary at the beginning of uh, Dharma teaching or um, any Buddhist practice really to go for refuge to the three jewels. Um, we begin by going for, uh, going for refuge means to recognize what it is that can provide shelter or protection for us in our lives. Um, there are all kinds of mundane things that we take refuge in, like uh, having a job to make enough money to pay our rent each month, or um, hopefully trusting that law enforcement would help us if we were in some kind of difficult situation we couldn't get out of by ourselves. But these, uh, according to the Buddhist worldview, these are um, fallible sources of refuge. They are unreliable. Your money's not always there when you need it. Your job's not always there when you need it. Your shelter can be taken away from you. And as we all know, law enforcement doesn't always help you. And sometimes they do the exact opposite. So those are not things that we can take any kind of ultimate refuge in. And um, Buddhism, the... the um, the idea of refuge in Buddhism is that there are things that we can take refuge in that can provide real shelter, that can provide real protection. And these are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So we go for refuge to the Buddha by recalling that... Um, we, we begin by thinking about the historical Buddha. We have these images of the historical Buddha, a person who was able to perfect their consciousness, remove all obstacles to having a perfectly loving, compassionate mind, and having a completely omniscient mind. So uh, a Buddha is able to experience all beings and recognize the suffering that they experience and have deep profound compassion and love for them and a, a deep desire and willingness to help and serve those beings and try to help alleviate their suffering in some way. But the Buddha didn't just, the Buddha's not just a figure who's like existed 2,500 years ago who like got enlightened and then was out of here and was like, you guys are on your own. I'm going to Nirvana and you guys are stuck here. But the Buddha's whole teaching, the whole point of Buddhism is that, um, that you too can uh, replicate the results and the experiences of the Buddha. In other words, that the, the message of the Buddha and why we're going for refuge to the Buddha is that the Buddha says you too can end suffering for yourself. He's not, he doesn't set himself up as a special guy who, ha, who achieved something that's unattainable for, other, for mere mortals like us, but rather that he is a, a symbol and a sign that we're not stuck the way that we are. We're not stuck in our own habitual reactivity and emotionality and uh, um, ongoing discontent, that there is an alternative to that way of life and that it's achievable. So when we go for refuge to Buddha, we're taking shelter in the idea that we're not stuck in samsara. We're not stuck in the cycle of suffering, that things are changeable, that we are evolving. We go for refuge to the Dharma by recalling that the Buddha left instructions behind. Um, the, Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, but also many other beings who have, achi who have achieved uh, higher states of evolution, we could say, cosmic evolution, have documented their experiences and documented their processes. Uh, and, they have left, uh, and they have left instruction manuals behind for us to follow. They've left like a trail of breadcrumbs that we can we can trace in order to replicate their, uh, replicate their results. So the Dharma is like a, a scientific methodology that asserts that you can perfect your consciousness and here are the experiments to put into practice to test this assertion. Is it possible? You have to find out for yourself by doing the experiments. So we go for refuge to Buddha not by venerating a idealized figure, but by recognizing that we can, we can do it too. And we go for refuge to the Dharma be, by realizing that there are practices and um, philosophies and thought experiments that we can put into practice to develop this way ourselves. And then the third of the three jewels is the Sangha. 
And the Sangha is the community of people who are also trying to put these things into practice. So uh, in, in its most basic form, the Sangha are all the people in this room, people who come to a Dharma center on Thursday night instead of hanging out at the bar and watching Netflix at home. We've decided that. Did I remind you of something better to do? <laughs> that, uh, that we are, uh, that it's important to us enough that we're willing to take the time out of our lives and uh, to come to a place like this and to study these kinds of things and to try to put them into practice ourselves. But the Sangha also refers to all of the, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, not just uh, Siddhartha Gautama, our historical Buddha, but also many other beings who have done, who have done these kinds of things. You know, we have all of these different Buddhas on the wall. We have Siddhartha Gautama, but we also have Manjushri and Avalokiteshvara and the Taras and Manjushri and so on. Um, all of these beings are supporting us in our practice. And we can rely on them for the, um, the modes of practice that they left behind in the form of the different styles of Dharma, um, but also feel like they're kind of our cheerleaders. You know, they're giving us uh, encouragement and, uh, you know, pushing us along on the path. So we can converge those two things by imagining as a thought experiment that the other people who are working together, who we're working together with to cultivate the Dharma are all bodhisattvas and Buddhas in their own right who are manifesting in the particular ways and forms that they do in order to provide us uh, encouragement and support in our daily lives. From the Buddhist point of view, it would be safe for me to assume that I'm the only person in the room who's not enlightened because I'm the only person who can say for sure that I'm not enlightened. I don't know about any of you. And it would be safe to assume that you are all Buddhas who show up so that I have uh, people to talk to about these things. Uh, Bob, Bob Thurman says that um, teaching Dharma is the best way to learn the Dharma because you don't really believe anything that anybody else says, but if you hear yourself saying it, you're like, well, it must be true. If I'm saying it, it must be true. And so. Teaching Dharma, hearing yourself talk about Dharma is a good way to convince yourself that you believe what you're talking about. That's a Bob Thurman. He's a funny guy. So um, a really great Buddhist teacher as well. So those are the three jewels. And that's, how, that's one way to, of going for refuge. Um, then also, it's important to set our motivation and to recall that we are... Um, doing these practices and developing ourselves in this way, not only to help alleviate our own suffering, but ultimately to really help other beings as well. Um, Buddhas, uh, Buddhas are beings who, what they do is teach. They, it, another thought experiment. If Buddhas had the power to take our suffering away from us, they would have done it already. And so the fact that we still have experiences of suffering indicates that Buddhas don't have the power to take suffering away from other people. They can, they can solve the problem for their own self, and then they can share what they've learned through the experience, through the process, and encourage other people to try it as well. So the, um, the motivation of a Buddha is to help others get out of suffering as well. And so that's the motivation that we want to bring as we're trying to cultivate ourselves and, and ideally become Buddhas sooner than later uh, ourselves. So having that altruistic motivation is very important for um, not, develop, not practicing spiritual techniques with selfishness as your motivation, because that's self-sabotaging. Uh, the bodhicitta ideal is um, helping other beings get out of suffering, even at the expense maybe of our own comfort that we're working for the benefit of others even more than, the, than we're working for the benefit of ourselves. And that's how we, wanting things more for others than we want it for ourselves is how we ratchet ourselves up the cosmic evolutionary ladder. And so wanting enlightenment for others 
is how we create the karmic momentum to have enlightenment forced upon us by our own, by the, our own karmic momentum, our own karmic seeds ripening. So we don't come to a Dharma teaching with motivation of learning um, things that we can use to impress people at cocktail parties or things that we can go sell on the internet and um, get rich by convincing people to buy our products. Those are impure motivations. Um, and the pure motivation is saying, I'm learning this so that I can get out of suffering, so that I have the skill and the knowledge to help others get out of suffering. So that's why we need to learn to meditate. And today, this class is on the levels and paths of meditation. Meditation is, um, is a skill to be developed, like learning to play an instrument. Um, just as you wouldn't sit down at a piano for the first time and expect to be ready to perform in front of an audience, the same is true for meditation. With learning, to learn, with learning to play piano, there are fundamental skills that you learn, and then as you master the fundamental skills, you build another layer of skill on top of that and another skill, layer of skill on top of that. And just as a beginner wouldn't practice te techniques that are appropriate for an expert, likewise with meditation. Um, so uh, this roadmap, the stages of meditation, I think is critical information for anybody who is interested in meditation, who learns, who's learning how to meditate or is practicing seriously, because this, uh, this articulates the various techniques and skills to develop at, at each stage, uh, how to identify where, which stage you're at, and identify the obstacles at each stage and what the antidotes to those obstacles are. And it's not the same for everybody because we're all going to be at different stages of meditation. And, and really, you might find yourself at a different stage of meditation each day of the week. Some days you might be more agitated. Some days you might be more dull. Some days you might have a really great practice. Other days you might not be able to even identify the object. Um, but for wherever you're at, being familiar with this model um, gives you the tools to say, oh, OK, this is where I'm at, and this is where, what I need to be working on today. So we're going to look at the, the same process, the same sequence of developing the various skills of meditation from three different perspectives. We're going to look at the, the nine stages, the nine mental states. We're going to look at the six powers, the six, uh, six different um, techniques of meditation that you're going to master at one stage in order to move on to the next stage. Mastering one of the six powers is what creates the condition of possibility to move to the next stage. Mastering the power at that level is what enables you to move to the next stage, and so on. And then the four modes are the four modes of for focus, the different type of concentration that you're using to develop the power at that particular stage. So the, the nine mental stages the 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 nine mental stages are taking you from a, a from a place of a person who has never tried to meditate before and then ends at a point where you are able to concentrate unwaveringly on whatever you put your mind on without distraction for as long as you want. And then the goal at that, at that most advanced stage is to put your mind on a useful object that is going to uh, facilitate powerful transformations in consciousness. At the beginning stages, we're just looking to be able to identify the object and um, learn what the object is. So the first, the, first the first of the nine stages is uh, called placing the mind on the object. Placing the mind on the object 
there are three, the three main um, techniques when placing the mind on the object is, first of all, being able to identify what the object is, setting the mind on the object of meditation, um, noticing when you're off the object of meditation and being able to bring your mind back to the object of meditation, and that's facilitated with watchfulness, the, the part of your mind that notices if you're on the object of meditation or not. So at, at this stage, the, the, um, the goal of the meditator is um, learning the meditation instructions. Um, For example, if you don't know what the meditation object is, how can you possibly find it? And if the meditation object is difficult to find, it may be uh, not a good meditation object to begin with. So this is why um, uh, mindfulness or breathing meditation is often one of the beginning techniques that is uh, taught to people as they're getting involved with meditation, as they're starting to develop the basic fundamental skills of meditation. Um, the, the reason that breath meditation is used is because the mm -hmm. object is, is relatively easy to find. The object is always present. There are always physical sensations of breathing. It's, it's a sensation that you're having, and so it's simply noticing the sensation. Um, with breath meditation, there are multiple levels of subtlety so even at the beginning, you might be looking at the feeling of the breath in the abdomen because the physical sensations of breathing in the abdomen are the strongest. And then gradually um, find more and more subtle physical sensations. And uh, you might also have heard of this one where you focus on the sensations of breathing on the inner lip of the nostril because you're trying to put your mind to a finer and finer point of concentration. Um, but meditating on the breath is not a useful object per se. Meditating on the breath doesn't facilitate transformations to the consciousness. The meditating on the breath helps to um, develop the, the, the skill, the technical skill of concentration, shamatha, single-pointed concentration, which is one of the techniques of meditation. So uh, meditation is a tool that we need to home that we're trying to cultivate. And so at the early stages of meditation, really we're just forging the, the tool, not necessarily using it. So the, an analogy would be like using an ax to chop down a tree. In this metaphor, the tree is suffering um, and the ax is meditation. So we need to have a really sharp ax in order to cut down the tree. But there's no point in having a really sharp axe just for the sake of having a really sharp axe. The point of forging the tool is to use it for something. So at the early stages of meditation, we're, we're simply sharpening the axe, developing concentration. And then at the more advanced stages, we're going to start actually using the axe to, to, to uh, chop down the tree of suffering. Or um, using a raft to cross a river. Um, once you've got to the other side, you don't necessarily need the raft anymore, but you need to have a really good raft in order to get across the river safely. And so the raft is developing meditation. Building the raft is cultivating meditation. And then uh, using the raft is using the, using the raft to cross the river is using meditation to, to uh, cross the river of samsara, to get across the dangerous waters of samsara. And, uh, and then once we've crossed the river, we don't necessarily need the raft anymore. Once we've chopped down the tree, we don't necessarily need the axe. But we can't get that far without the tool. So shamatha, single point of concentration, is about developing this tool of meditation. Um, so at the, at the beginning, we're coming from a place where the mind is basically tearing off down the road and we're chasing after our mind without really any control. The mind is making the decisions and uh, we kind of go along with wherever it drags us. We have the, um, the image of the monkey and the elephant uh, as different aspects of the mind. The, the, um, you've maybe heard the term monkey mind. It's kind of trendy now that mindfulness meditation is becoming sort of mainstream and people talk about monkey mind. Uh, monkey mind represents agitation, um, hyperactivity that prevents us from settling down and concentrating. But there's also the elephant mind. 
An elephant mind represents dullness or laziness, which is either just not getting to the meditation cushion at all, not even really trying to meditate, or drowsiness, dullness, lethargy. In both of these cases, the, the mind is not on the meditation object, the chosen meditation object. Either it's flying off to other objects because it's agitated or it's slumping into dullness and kind of going to sleep. Um, maybe because we are tired and haven't had enough sleep. So um, we start from this place where the, the monkey mind and the elephant mind are basically rampaging and we're not in control at all. And the, in the, um, the map, using these metaphors, the first thing is to get a, a leash on the elephant and on the monkey so that you can like start tugging on the leash, start trying to get the mind, trying to turn the mind in the, to the direction that you want it to go in. So in the, in the first part of that, we are, um, we're simply recalling the meditation object, recalling the instructions. Notice the sensations of breathing. When you've noticed your mind uh, has lost the object of observing the sensations of breathing, sweetly, gently, kindly bring the mind back to the object. And the, the first two stages are um, first finding the object, setting the mind on the object, and second, keeping the mind on the object with brief continuity. So at the, on the first of the six um, powers is um, simply noticing when, our, noticing when our mind is off the object. Um, at this stage, the mind is off the object of meditation more than it's on the object of meditation. The biggest danger at this stage is that you notice for the first time that your mind is totally out of control. And um, this, this, provide, this creates a, uh, obstacles for people who... Um, they, when you first start to learn to meditate and you notice that your mind is out of control, it seems like meditation is making things worse. But it's not that it's making things worse, it's just that you're noticing for the first time how out of control your mind actually is. So many people quit at the, at just at the first stage because they're like, I uniquely have a mind that is too agitated, too distracted to learn how to meditate. But everybody goes through that stage. Everybody feels that way at the beginning. And um, even people who have been meditating for a long time still have to d reckon with agitation and dullness. And um, so... This is, again, this is why I think this material is so helpful to learn, because this is, this is thousands of years of empirical research, uh, and they've come up with the same conclusion that, we, that many people have today, which is that when you sit down and meditate, you notice that your mind is out of control. It seems discouraging at first, but you have to stick with it because, if, because it's a skill, and we're developing a skill. So we learn to practice. We learn to lengthen the amount of time that we're able to hold our mind on the meditation object, up he, uh, in here, they say that uh, keeping uh, keeping the object on the keeping the mind on the object with brief continuity. Brief continuity means about ten seconds. Identifying the object is simply like noticing. Oh, I'm breathing, and then you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner, or what you're going to do later, or what you watched on TV last night, and then you're like, oh, that's not what I'm supposed to be thinking about. I'm breathing, and then immediately you're already thinking about something else. But then when you've got all the way to stage two. You're able to keep your mind on the object for about 10 seconds and follow the breathing for, for a few moments before your mind hijacks the situation and takes you someplace else. So that seems doable, right? Like stage two, keep your mind on the object for 10 seconds. We can get there. So um, we're learning the instructions. We're contemplating the instructions. This is what gets us to the point that we're able to keep the object on the mind for, for uh, object the mind on the object. Excuse me, with brief continuity. Is that an example? Of... <laughs> and that's what leads us to to the first uh, the first bend in the um, in the uh, the path. 
And then we're at the point where we are um, patching the gaps and placing the mind on the object closely. These are the next, um, the third and fourth stages of meditation are placing the mind on the object and patching the gaps and placing on the mind on the object closely. And the power that you're cultivating at this stage is bringing your mind back to the object. So here we're able to keep the mind on the object, the object on the mind. Oh boy. <laughs> at this point, we're able to keep the mind on the object for 10 seconds. And then we're trying to lengthen that amount of time. And the, and the turning point is where you're able to hold your mind on the object for a longer period of time than the gap is. And so that, that's why it's called patching the gaps. Now you're just trying to say, oh, I'm off the object, bring it back. Oh, I'm off the object, bring it back. And try to stretch out the period of time that you're on the object and reduce the amount of time that you are spaced out and you don't notice that you're not on the object. And then placing the object, uh, placing the mind on the object closely is um, when you're developing the power of watchfulness. And watchfulness is the technique of meditation for being able to notice if your mind is doing what you want it to do or not. So it's like having a, it's like having a security guard who like is making sure that the, all the doors are locked. And every few seconds, the security guard comes by to check and see if the doors are still locked. And if, and if your mind's not on the object, the security guard's going to say, oh, there's a problem here. We need to fix it. And then you get alerted by watchfulness, the security guard, and then you bring your mind back to the object. And so developing watchfulness to a higher and higher degree is what allows us to notice more quickly if our mind is off the object and bring our mind back to the object more quickly. The goal is to be able to put the mind where you want it to be and keep it there indefinitely without any distraction. So um, at this point, we, are, we start to be able to recognize the distinction between gross dullness and subtle dullness. Gross dullness, up until this point, we're not, we don't even know the difference between gross dullness and subtle dullness. Gross dullness is where you just start to doze off and, you're, and you basically are falling asleep on the cushion. And if you want to induce gross dullness and, and you want to, if you really want to know what this feels like, here's how you induce gross dullness. Um, have pizza for dinner and then ice cream for dessert. And then um, go into your meditation chamber and turn the lights really low and turn on a space heater so it's a good 75, 80 degrees in there. And, uh, and, then, and then try to meditate after a big meal lights down, very cozy and warm, then that, that's subtle dullness. That's, that's gross dullness. You can imagine what that is pretty easily, I, I think. Um, subtle dullness, however, is when, you're, when you haven't lost the object, but that you're not, it's not very vivid. It's not very bright and clear and sharp and focused. And so you can meditate on an object, but kind of half of your mind is thinking about something else a little bit, or um, you're on the object, but it's not very distinct. So at, it's at this stage that we're even, even able to notice subtle dullness that, that we, we're, we feel like we're meditating, but we're not very sharp. And so we are, um, the, uh, in the um, map, it shows that the monkey, is the monkey and the elephant are now looking back. You'll see we're on the third of the paths, and the, the monk character has got the elephant and the monkey on a leash, and they're, they're looking back. And what the monkey and the elephant looking back indicates is that the, the meditator is um, able to start to yoke the mind to the object. Um, instead of tearing off down the road and having to say, wait up, wait for me, and then finally getting a leash on it and starting to tug on them, we're at the point where they notice that they're being tugged on, the, the, the agitation and dullness notice that, that they're being uh, tamed and uh, that's why they're looking back in, the, in this picture. So at the fourth stage, the fourth of the nine stages of meditation, the, um, 
is, is called maintaining the mind tightly on the object. Um, this is where we basically have uh, um, we basically have learned how to meditate at this stage. We've learned how to identify um, subtle agitation and subtle dullness. We're more or less able to keep the mind on the object. Um, agitation starts to lose its grip at this point uh, in the in the fifth and sixth stage, um, which means that we're able to sit down to meditate without the mind constantly saying, come on, let's go, let's go get something to eat instead of this, which will be more fun. There's more better things we could be doing right now. But you're able to tame agitation before you are able to tame dullness. And being able to tame agitation means that you can sit down at med in meditation and start to have some physical sensations of comfort in meditation. It no longer feels like a chore or something you have to drag yourself to do. Um, it starts to be something that feels um, natural. Watchfulness will not let the mind get distracted, and uplifting your heart leads you to a state of one-pointed concentration. The next two stages are called controlling the mind and quieting the mind. And these are both achieved with the power of effort. So, um, uh, at this point, we're, we're already dealing with somebody who's a pretty darn skilled meditator. At this point, the, the meditator is able to place their mind on the object. They have more or less gotten rid of gross agitation and gross dullness. And now it's about um, working out the subtle agitation and the subtle dullness. Subtle, agi subtle dullness I already mentioned. Subtle agitation is where your mind is kind of split between the, uh, the object of meditation but you can kind of sort of be thinking a little bit about something else. You, you can kind of bifurcate your mind a little bit. And so you've got the meditation object, like you're watching your breath, but every so often you're thinking about what's on Netflix. Um, but, then, but, it, but you never actually lose the main object. You just kind of think about something else without quite losing the main object. That's subtle agitation. And so the power of effort the, uh, the fifth of the six powers, effort, is where you have to be extremely vigilant about subtle agitation and subtle dullness. And, um, and it's basically about working out the kinks in the system. You've pretty much got the machine working properly. You're just working the last little bugs out. And that's what leads to the uh, sixth of the six powers. Oh, so wait, sorry. The... the um, the stages at the, at the power of effort are called pacifying the mind totally and making the mind single-pointed. So at stage eight, making the mind single-pointed means that you're able to place your mind on the object and keep it there without wavering. When subtle agitation and subtle dullness come up, you notice them right away and you have to apply effort to, to uh, sequester them. And so the... As we're going through these seventh and eighth stages, the, the amount of effort needed to manage the subtle agitation and dullness is decreasing. And that's when we get to the ninth stage called achieving equilibrium, and the power is called complete habituation. And at that stage, the mind uh, is able to stay on the object of meditation without effort. This is 24-7 meditation. At this point, you're meditating on, your, on reality at all times. And when agita and agitation and dullness don't come up because the, uh, at this point, the antidotes have been applied so many times that subtle agitation and dullness don't even come up. Then we get to the very last stage where you see the, at the top of the, of the map there, uh, the monk is flying off, and there's no elephant or monkey anymore. Um, and this is called the, the combination of insight and quietude. Uh, shamatha, which is quietude, insight is vipassana. And this is what I was referring to at the, at the very beginning, which is developing single-pointed concentration, shamatha, to this stage, to this ninth stage, and then turning that shamatha onto an object that has the power to transform your consciousness at a fundamental level. 
which is usually emptiness, uh, mahamudra, um, shunyata, uh, something along those lines. The, the, the lack of inherent characteristics to ultimate reality. That is a whole big conversation that I don't think we'll have time to get into tonight. Um, but that's, that's when the, the axe is sharpened, the raft is built, and then turn it against the, turn it onto the, the object you're, you're actually trying to deal with and, and trigger massive transformations in the way that your consciousness works. So that's what we're trying to do by learning how to meditate. And with this information, we can identify which of the nine stages that we're at, which of the six powers we need to be working on, and what, what, it is, what the next stage is that we're trying to achieve. So to, uh, to review, the first stage is identify the object. The technique to develop is learning the meditation instructions. The, the problem is that you become aware of what a mess your mind is and you feel like you should quit because you're just too crazy to learn how to meditate. But you have to get over that to get onto the next, sta the next stage. The next stage is contemplating the object, extending the amount of time that you're able to keep the, your mind on the object without it flying off. Um, the, this, this stage is called placing the mind on the object with some continuity. And the, um, the, technique to, the technique to be working on is contemplating the instructions. So first is learning the instructions, which is just like the, getting the sequence of steps. Contemplating the instructions is really working with the material, trying to understand how to use it. What am I really doing here? Why am I doing this? But contemplating the instructions helps build faith and confidence that gets you going, and keeps you going to the next stage. So during the first two stages, you have a, an abundance of dullness and agitation and only occasionally fix your mind on the object. So don't get discouraged if that's where you're at. Um, the periods of distraction are longer than the periods which the mind is fixed on the object. But if you work on that long enough, you get to the third stage, which is called placing your mind on the object and patching the gaps. The, the technique here is to shorten the length of time that your mind is off the object. Develop watchfulness so that you notice more quickly when your mind is off the object and bring your mind back to the object. The fourth stage is called placing the mind on the object closely and this is where you really start to correct for dullness and agitation. So we're able to identify the object, we're able to bring our mind back to the object, we're able to extend the amount of time that our mind is off the, on the object, shorten the amount of time that our mind is off the object, and then we start working with correcting for agitation and dullness, which is noticing, that, noticing why we leave the object due to agitation or dullness, gross agitation or subtle agitation, gross dullness or subtle dullness, and begin to apply the antidotes to be able to more quickly get our mind back to the object and to, to hold our mind on the object closely for a longer period of time. Um, from the completion of the fourth stage, um, the power of meditation is complete. So at the fourth, at, at stage four out of nine, you're technically fully meditating. And from that point forward, it's about refining the meditation, improving the focus, improving the concentration, which is primarily dealing with subtle agitation and subtle dullness. So at the fifth stage, which is called controlling the mind, the, um, the, uh, on, the, on the fourth stage, where we're correcting for dullness and agitation, requires a high degree of introspection. So you're, you're paying a lot of attention to why did I fly off the object and how do I get back to the object correctly? Um, but then the risk of that fourth stage is that you become too introspective. 
that you become too deep inside, and that's when subtle dullness starts to become a real problem. That you are you are meditating, the meditation is complete, but the um, but it's not clear, it's not vivid, it's not bright because of the subtle dullness. So the antidote at the fifth stage, watching for subtle dullness, is to brighten up. That's why I think I said earlier, uplift the heart, right? I think I said something like that. Um, uplifting the heart leads to a state of one-pointed concentration. Too deep inside from introspection, learning how to observe subtle agitation and subtle dullness, the antidote to that is to brighten up, uplift the heart. Um, you can kind of use your spine and your, and your, your head as a kind of a throttle because when your chin is tucked more, you're going to have more dullness. And if your chin is pointed up more, you're going to have more agitation. And so really just adjusting the way that you're holding your spine and the way that you're holding your head can adjust for agitation and dullness. So um, uplifting the heart, I think, is a beautiful image because it does have this physical component of, of opening the chest, pulling the heart center forward, extending the spine, and that's going to balance for dullness. It's a physical kind of yoga practice, and asana, to, to um, balance for dullness. But then, guess what happens? You end up too bright and subtle agitation takes over where the mind is too ready to fly off the object. So at the sixth stage, we're watching for subtle agitation, and we're trying to balance out. We went too, we went too dull, and then we went too bright, and now we're you know, gradually trying to like adjust the throttle and the gas pedal so we're having a balanced meditation. The fifth and sixth stages are achieved by, the, by watchfulness, learning to observe our mind. And at the completion of the sixth stage, watchfulness is complete, which means your ability to notice if you're experiencing agitation or dullness, either gross or subtle, is on point. Your watchfulness notices right away, and now it's just about cultivating the antidotes to a highly refined degree. And that's what uh, stage seven is called, pacifying the mind totally, is uh, the, the practice here is eliminating subtle dullness and agitation. So in the seventh stage, subtle dullness and agitation still come up, but the ability to counteract them is almost immediate. The antidotes are powerful, you've developed the techniques, and you're able to notice right away and apply the antidote right, right away. Stage eight, even less effort is required. Stage eight is called making the mind single-pointed, and that's where you are applying the antidotes to subtle dullness and the agitation, but without conscious effort. You're not, you're not meditating and then interrupting your meditation to say, oh, I'm experiencing subtle agitation. I shall apply the antidote to subtle agitation and then return to my meditation, which is what you're doing at st stage seven. There's conceptual reactivity. Mm. At stage eight, there's no longer conceptual reactivity. The, you have trained your mind stream to apply the antidote without, uh, in, without having to cerebrally notice that you're doing it. And then um, stage nine uh, is called achieving equilibrium, and that's effortless single-pointed concentration. Um, no more subtle agitation or dullness. Um, shamatha is complete, and um, you are able to effortlessly go into meditation uh, spontaneously which essentially means that you're capable of meditating all the time. The nine stages of meditation and the six powers. Um, and then I also said we'd talk about the four <coughs> modes of focus. These are called forceful concentration, Focus in a stream but with interruptions, un uninterrupted stream, and effortless focus. So the first two stages, placing the mind on the object and placing the mind on the object with some continuity, require forceful concentration. This is where we really need to like hold ourselves to the grindstone and say, I'm going to learn how to meditate. It's difficult. It's frustrating. My mind is a mess. But... I'm going to learn how to do it. I've made the decision. I've set the intention. And, uh, and so 
it requires forceful concentration to be able to just identify the object and place the mind on it for more than a few seconds at a time. And then the next five stages, placing the mind on the object and patching the gaps, placing the mind on the object closely, controlling the mind, pacifying the mind, and pacifying the mind totally, the, are, all call, are all under the heading of focus in a stream but with interruptions. So you're able to hold the meditation object, but, what, but your mind still flies off the object occasionally. And during these five stages, you're just shortening the amount of time that your mind is off the object and improving your ability to uh, notice and bring it back quickly. Then the eighth stage, making the mind single-pointed, is the, the mode of focus called uninterrupted stream, where the mind is, is able to stay on the object without interruptions. And, and then the ninth stage, achieving equilibrium, is effortless focus. So those are four modes of focus. The impression you have during the first stage is one of recognizing that you have too many thoughts. In the second stage, you have a feeling that, there, that, that the, that the um, busyness of your mind is making a resurgence. By the third stage, the impression is that the problem of too many thoughts has tired out, so you can say that the first two states are a question of how long the mind can stay fixed on the object. What distinguishes the third and fourth stages is whether or not one can, one can lose the object or not at all. So at the third stage, you're still flying off the object, but on the fourth stage, you're still holding on to the, uh, you're able to hold your mind on the object. The, the difference between the fourth and fifth stages are the difference between whether gross dullness can arrive, arise. The fifth and sixth stages are separated by whether or not subtle dullness can arise. And the difference between seven and eight are separated by whether there is any agitation or dullness at all, and the difference between eight and nine are differentiated by whether or not you have to use any conscious effort. The seventh level is devoted to eliminating dullness and agitation, rather is about eliminating them, rather than, rather than having to worry about slipping into agitation or dullness, you've already conquered that, the seventh stage is about eliminating agitation and dullness completely. Trijong Rinpoche, the uh, author who wrote the, the text, the commentary that we have here, he says, our Lama said at this point, it's like having a fist fight with an enemy who is already weakened to the point of exhaustion. It's not like you need to be on your guard. It's just enough to be thinking about how to finish him off. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Trijong. And in conclusion, I'd like to read something else that Trijong Rinpoche said. Um, by the way, Trijong Rinpoche is a, a great character. He died, I believe, in the 80s. He lived from 1901 to 1981. So he was born in Tibet and went through the Tibetan diaspora when the Chinese evaded in the 50s. Um, Trijong Rinpoche um, was one of the tutors of the, the current Dalai Lama. Uh, Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama. Um, so he was one of uh, the main teachers of the, the, the Dalai Lama. And um, I'm also proud to say that he's in my immediate lineage as well. My teacher's teacher's teacher, I think. So he'd be like my great-grandfather or something like that. It was Trijong Rinpoche. Um, and some of his relics actually are at Vajrapani Institute in um, Boulder Creek, California which is a Galupa center. Um, so just a little aside there. But uh, he has a great quote in here that I really want to read. Okay, this is, uh, this is the combination of shamatha and vipassana, single-pointed concentration and and insight that single-pointed concentration leads you to. Suppose that, after achieving quietude in the way described above, you go on to meditate one-pointedly upon the profound worldview of the, mud, of the middle way, reaching a balance in your practice between the ability to analyze reality and the ability to hold your mind fixed in meditation on the conclusions gained from your analysis. 
This analysis will automatically enable you to reach an extraordinary level of physical and mental meditative pleasure. And it is at this point that we can say, you have achieved the special insight into reality in its authentic form. If you practice these instructions correctly, then you will gain the razor-sharp sword of wisdom, a form of one-pointed concentration where quietude and insight, shamatha and vipassana, are married together. You can then carry this mighty sword onto the field of battle, and as time goes by, smash the two great obstacles, those to achieving nirvana and those to achieving total enlightenment. That is, you can eliminate within you every undesirable quality. With this, you will win the great victory of the four bodies of a Buddha and find yourself able to perform enlightened deeds constantly and spontaneously without any conscious thought, fulfilling the hopes of every living creature for as long as space itself endures. So that's why we learn how to meditate. It gives us the power to change the way that reality itself is working. Let's take a moment now to uh, recall our motivation. Um, at the end of a Buddhist practice or Buddhist teaching, it's customary to dedicate the merit or dedicate the good karma by congratulating ourselves for putting efforts into trying to learn these things and trying to practice these things and trying to cultivate these things. And remember that we're doing it as much or more for other beings than for ourselves, that really we're not doing this to improve our, not just doing this to improve ourselves, but really to become better able to help and serve other beings. And um, so as we grow and cultivate in these techniques, we are becoming, we're becoming more able to be present for other people. We're able to listen to them rather than react. We're able to manage our emotions so that we don't flip out at people when we feel agitated or provoked. And those are minor steps towards making the world a better place. And that ultimately, a, a Buddha is a, a person who is always helping people, is always treating them kindly and with love. And we want to embody those qualities as much as possible. And we want, we want to live in a world where everybody is embodying these qualities. And that's what we dedicate our efforts to. That's why we're putting in this work. 